the other realization for business executives should be, you know, there's a price on carbon emissions that will be coming probably more broadly, globally, in the near future. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we'll discuss carbon removal, carbon sequestration, and direct air capture. What are these things and what do CEOs need to do and know about them? Joining me today is Alex Heil, the senior economist here at the conference board and an expert in all things carbon. Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's always a pleasure. Alex, you've just written a new report, which I found to be fascinating about carbon and all of these, these areas, which we're going to talk about. And, you know, everybody talks about 2050, we're going to be living in a carbon-free environment, but there's a lot of work that needs to happen between now and 2050 if that's going to happen. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's very true. I think especially after the climate summit COP28 at the end of last year, there's been a lot of attention given to carbon removal, how much that's going to be part of a strategy of decarbonizing the economy going forward. And that is probably true. But to be honest, I think the entire industry at this point is still in a phase of exploration, discovery and really infancy. And everything, you know, when I talk to CEOs, what they talk about is, okay, we're, we're cutting our carbon emissions. We're cutting this, we're cutting this. And we're, you know, we're, we're heading down towards, uh, you know, net zero of 2050. You've got this transfer in energy uh, production from, you know, mostly uh, hydrocarbon related to renewables and nuclear and all of that. But that's just the emissions. What you're talking about is something different. Yeah, what I'm talking about is really, you know, just to to just connect to the point on emissions, we really as a as a world, as a global society have not yet reached peak emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. We're not even there yet. We're not even there yet. So it's it's I think the discussion really needs to be framed in light of the, the point that the peak is probably still a couple years out. And then if we want to go from there, which is by that point, 25, 26, 27, uh, to 2050 to net zero, we need to reduce emissions, if we're just looking at the emission sites, by you know roughly maybe 6% per year. That's a big, big decline in terms of getting to a, a no emission uh, world by 2050. But there will always be sectors that are hard to address in that transition. And there are also historical emissions. Carbon stays in the atmosphere, CO2 stays in the atmosphere and is active as a global uh, warming agent for up to 100 years. So we also need to think about, you know, historical emissions need to think about concentrations, and that's when carbon removal really plays a role. So you said several things in there that are really important. I just want to hit. So first of all, we're not at peak yet, so we're still climbing. We're still emitting more every single year until we hit that peak. Even with all the stuff we've read in the newspapers, heard on the, everything that everybody's doing, we're still not there. And then you have to decline you know, and whether or not 2050 is is reasonable depends on how fast these technologies emerge. You've written on on that subject, um, how fast we transform our energy sector. But even so, you have all this residual 
CO2 that's still in the atmosphere. And so therefore, we also need to be thinking about not only how do we um, how do we taper down on the emission side, but how do we take stuff out of the atmosphere? And that's that's this whole subject of this paper. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the topic of this paper. And you know, some of the um, the dynamics are different in different countries. The U.S. has actually emissions in the U.S. have started to decline. Probably not at the rate that we would need them to decline in order to reach net zero by 2050. But Carbon removal is going to play an increasingly important role in all of this. And I think we need to differentiate between, you know, some of these different terminologies. In, in doing the research for this paper, I discovered how immensely complicated and complex this topic really is. But if we want to just distill this to the, the main takeaways, you can either capture carbon emissions at the source, which might be a power plant, an industrial site, or as it's been you know, covered in the media, you could essentially you know, suck it out of, the, out of the atmospheric air. So those are the two approaches. And then we have, as an as a industrial society, been using the former for decades. So for instance, there have been industrial sites or, or energy plants at which, not that many, but a few where carbon dioxide has been um, captured and then reutilized for other purposes, enhanced oil recovery is one of them to increase the yield from, let's say, an oil field that's been injected into the, into the ground. Now, that's not removing CO2, but that certainly has built expertise in that industry on how to capture some of the CO2. And then on the, on the actual removal side, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, discussion when it comes to capturing CO2 directly from the air. There's a site that went live at the end of last year out in California, where uh, carbon is now being captured directly from um, ambient air through a limestone type process. But the numbers for direct air capture are still so, so tiny. It's really just, just pilot projects at this point. Okay, so you've got sort of three terms here which you've thrown out, carbon removal, direct air capture, and then the sequestration. Carbon removal and direct air capture are, are similar in the sense yes. that you're trying to well, you're trying to take it out of the atmosphere, one very close to the source, the other just out of the straight out of the air. And then you've got the sequestration. What is that? Well, it's really a question of what you do with it, right? So once you capture it from um, either directly the air or from an industrial or energy type process, what do you do with the CO2 that you now have uh, you know, essentially in, in some form, either, either solidified or in liquid form. And then you need to um, store it somewhere um, after this, if you've gone through this process, and that's when um, real challenges take place because you need to find a storage site. The storage site might not be next to an industrial facility, might not even be next to a direct air capture facility. So storage, so the process of, you know, delivering the CO2 that you've captured either from the air or from an industrial process, and then through an additional, you know, at times energy efficient, energy, uh, um, um, high intensity energy process to the point where you can actually save, safely store it in the ground. That's a whole nother set of processes and challenges for the industry. Yeah, and, and you know, we need to make clear, you're not a scientist, I'm not a scientist. Clearly you're not. A, you're Clearly an economist not. and you're coming at this from Yes. from that perspective, which which is great, because we, you know, it, 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 you know, hopefully we'll get uh, sort of a lay description here. But but just tell us a little bit. So you capture this stuff, 
and you got to lock it up somewhere and you got to lock it up forever i mean hopefully that so it doesn't get back into the atmosphere so what is what does it look like i mean you pull this stuff out of the air what what is it? You said liquid or solid. Is it well, it becomes essentially a so uh, it can in one form be a solid uh, substance that is then stored somewhere. The facility in Iceland, if I'm not mistaken, that is currently capturing CO2 directly from the atmosphere is using a it, it's almost, you know, imagine your soda stream um, carbonated water little device. machine you have. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Appliance you have in your kitchen. It's essentially doing that where it pumps that captured gas into the into a porous underground structure which then retains it and basically keeps and binds the co2 at, at depth in in a rock formation so there are a couple different ways to do this and i think you know we we really and again that's that's really on the engineering side of this need to figure out what's the way to do this in the most effective Talks and efficient effective. way yeah now you know when you're talking about nuclear you're t one of the, the big issue on nuclear is what well several safety is one but but then what do you do with the waste mm -hmm. and in that case you've got NIMBY issues not in my backyard because you've got the volatility of the waste product as well as the security and all of that and you know the whole yucca mountain thing and so forth this is different in the sense that you don't have the same kind of security issues or volatility issues so there the the NIMBY issues should be you know quite a bit less, there should be fewer of them than, than we're used to hearing about on the nuclear side. I think that's true. I think you still have issues, you know, when it comes to the construction and, you know, oper you know operation of, of uh, pipeline infrastructure. So you really need to think about how to, how to uh, move captured CO2 to a final storage place. And in case you're doing that in, you know, in the gas form, sorry, if you're using this as if you're if you're moving CO2 as a gas, essentially, then that happens to be more dense than ambient air. So if there was an accident where a large quantity was spilled, it stays on the ground. It would affect people if they're around and, okay, and expose so there, there them are some safety to, to greater CO2 concentration. Now, I'm not I'm neither a medical professional nor an engineer, but certainly in doing some of the research, it the, the safety are nowhere near as pronounced as they are for nuclear energy. That's certainly true. But I do think that there are some, you know, also safety issues that should be considered in all of this. Well, and then the question is who owns the facilities and who finances them and all right. of that. And, you know, everybody assumes government will do that, but that's not necessarily what's happening. No, I think it, I think there's a lot, a lot of questions about the incentives, the financial and economic incentives around this entire process. I mean, what would be a good incentive to push people, push industries, push companies towards capturing CO2 from the operations or making investments that would capture historic uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. And in order to, to really create an incentive, there needs to be an opportunity cost. There needs to be, let's say, like in Europe, an emission trading system where an emitted ton of carbon carries a price that a business may have to pay if, if uh, it chooses to emit a particular quantity. But on the other hand, then that would lead to a comparison between that price and how much it costs to actually sequester CO2 from a process. So it becomes this sort of marginal comparison between benefits and costs. Now, CEOs are accustomed to dealing with carbon offsets where they go to the marketplace and they buy it. In other words, they're 
their plants, they're producing, uh, you know, maybe food or something, and, and, but there is some carbon emissions. They go buy offsets for that in order to hit carbon neutrality within their business model, but they're still emitting. And these offsets are somewhat questionable now, we're finding out that, that you know, there, there, there are some offsets, but that, you know, that marketplace is not necessarily sufficient. No, I think that's true. The voluntary offset market has been really questioned in recent months and years. I think there's a lot of projects that have come under scrutiny in terms of how much CO2 is actually removed as part of either the energy project or the forestry project, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the, the focus of that, of that incentive there might be. And in many cases, it's just not the case that carbon offsets would create additional, meaningful, permanent um, CO2 reductions that could then be counted towards other emissions from a uh, industrial facility. Yeah, I and think this is important for CEOs to really understand because they think that they're okay. Everything's fine. I'm buying these offsets and fine. But these offsets are being sold by sometimes questionable companies it's turning out you know some of them are reputable i'm not trying to impugn the whole industry but you know they planted a forest somewhere and they've got trees growing and they're they're using that they get some credit for that because at some day at maturity that forest that they're planting is going to pull out a lot of carbon dioxide but it's not necessarily today so you know there's a lot that goes on here and, and there's double counting and all of that so i i really think what you know what what struck me from reading your paper is hey this is this is really a bigger issue and you can't just as a ceo just assume you can go to this market and everything's going to be fine you really have to do something within your business in order to start taking carbon out of the atmosphere and hence these these other things need to be you know the sequest first of all the the removal and then the direct air capture and the sequestration becomes a big deal cuz we cannot get there without this the advancement of of, uh, of these technologies. Yeah, I think that's true. I think all the scenarios that now, you know, project out emissions and, and various type of climate scenarios from now to 2050 or 2100, it doesn't really matter who, who is the organization, who is the entity that produced these scenarios. In what is now seen as the most realistic, the most probable ones, they have, um, you know, they incorporate a fair amount of um, carbon removal to the to the to the tune of probably several gigatons, billion metric million metric tons per year by 2050, and then certainly by 2100, and um, those are big numbers, especially compared to what we are where we're currently at. Getting there in early 2024 to 2050 and 2100, those that's going to require a massive step up of that industry in terms of what we're actually doing. We're talking about carbon and how to get to net zero. We're gonna take a short break and be right back. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the conference board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem solving for your organization. Membership at the conference board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a Conference Board member today by visiting www 
www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Auden from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Alex Heil, Senior Economist here at the Conference Board, and we're talking about carbon removal, direct air capture, and sequestration. So, you know, uh, Alex, this technology is is being developed. We've got some plants in in process. You talked about, uh, you know, one, for example, in Iceland, and there are, there are others. But there is an energy demand just to run these facilities. T talk about that and also the cost of carbon capture. Yeah, a lot of these processes, especially when we're talking about direct air capture, they are very energy intensive. So it takes a lot of energy to essentially process ambient air. And the simple reason there is that the concentration of CO2 in ambient air is much, much lower than it is from an industrial process, you know, several hundred times lower, actually. So if you're thinking about just the volume of air that needs to be processed, that takes a lot of pumps, that takes a lot of equipment, that is highly energy intensive. The statistic that stuck with me was, if I take a direct air capture facility in order to capture a ton of CO2 from the atmosphere and I run it on electricity that comes from a coal-fired power plant, I'm essentially emitting as much CO2 as I'm taking out of the air. So there is, it, there's a real conundrum here that we need to make sure that some of these facilities are powered by renewable sources, because if they're not powered by renewable sources, you're essentially shooting yourself in the foot with this, and you're or, not or, achieving the goals that you're trying to achieve. Or nuclear. In the, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, a low emission or no emission, no emission. alternative. That's yeah, this really is a really point. big point because we still have, in this country, what, 20% of the electricity being generated by coal. And, you know, what is it? It's over half, uh, two-thirds by, you know, uh, hydrocarbon. Yeah, I think the, the coal share is probably slightly lower than, than, than that today, but it's certainly true that they are, the fossil share is, is still significant yeah. for, um, for the grid in, let's say, the average grid mix in the United States. There are some countries worldwide. I think Germany just reported that their renewable electricity share in 2023 was slightly more than 50%, which is considerable, even it's, though they had big a, progress. Yeah, big progress. They had a bad year for solar, but they had a very good year for hydro and a very good year for wind. But um, even, even so, I think going forward, I think re the, the further adoption of renewables um, is going to be important, especially if those become the energy source for a lot of these a lot of these uh, capture and storage and, and removal facilities. Yeah, and just share with us some, you know, just some general numbers on the cost to remove carbon. Yeah, it's really hard to um, come up with a specific dollar figure. The ranges that are reported are relatively wide. If we're looking at carbon capture, sequestration, various different types, they vary between, you know, $50 a ton, $150, you know, $200 a ton. Um, if we're talking about direct air capture, you know, there are estimates that they are from four or five hundred to up to a thousand dollars a ton, orders of magnitude larger than what we're finding um, when it when it comes to one industrial plant capturing CO2 from the smokestack, for instance. The number that really always resonates with researchers and that is the one that is goal for the industry is a hundred dollars a ton. When it comes to direct air capture, that's the 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 price goal that 
I think those facilities are thriving towards, you know, and at this point in time, we are still pretty far away from that. And just, you know, how many tons need to come out? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, annual emissions for the world are about, you know, 55 billion metric tons or gigatons. And 55 billion tons at the annually times $100, even $100 a ton is a lot of money. Yeah, that's why I think, you know, the way that one needs to think about carbon removal, it's not the strategy that would basically offset all emissions, but we really need to think about reducing emissions first and choosing processes that have lower emission intensity. And then for what's left at some point, carbon renewal, you know, provides a, a successful strategy potentially. Just to come back to that number, I think it's always so staggering, you know, total emissions for the world, 55 billion or thereabouts. If we're looking at how much is, you know, carbon capture and utilization and either, you know, storage, um, that's probably around 45 million tons, million, million. Metric, million metric tons. So that's 0.1% of global emissions. And if we're then thinking about how much is actually captured just from the air, direct air capture, that's in the thousand tons. So zero. Yeah. It runs to zero. Yeah. So these are, I think the scale of all of this really needs to be kept in mind. And, and if that can't just be the only strategy, right. because it's just, we won't get there with those kind of numbers. Well, and with the current technology, which has you know, been your point as well, which is the technologies both on the renewable side so that the emissions come down need to, you know, need to advance and it needs to be basic R&D. You've talked about this in terms of miniaturization of solar. You've talked about this in terms of battery storage, you know, that we need to get away from lithium and, and you know, all these other things, maybe sodium's the the trick sodium batteries are the trick and but anyway you need to get those technologies moving but you're also saying on the same side you need to be pulling the stuff out of the air and those technologies need to be invested in and the costs need to come down dramatically but it it's i i think what i got from reading your paper that 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 was just you know that struck me is we're not going to get there with one or the other it, it has to be a combination of all of these strategies I think that's true, and I think we need to think about this probabilistically, essentially. So, what are the what are the avenues that that you know from that provide the most likely outcomes here and the most likely impacts? And I think realistically, that's probably addressing emissions first, and then thinking about some of the technologies you know that are really still in the infancy, like direct air capture um, as sort of uh, secondary and tertiary. Um, uh, strategy to get to the ultimate goal. And yes, it will require a lot more um, research and pilot projects and you know interest in that particular type of technology. And it's really a, a process of diversification, the way I think about this. We really need to think about what are the different strategies, the different technologies that exist. Let's not throw one out right away, um, especially, you know, you mentioned nuclear. I think there's been sort of a, 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 you know, a different change in the mindset by many observers and industry analysts that basically said, look, this is a no emission once it's in operation um, form of energy that can provide um, a certain base load of power without any variability and any intermittency. So it's probably from the operation of the grid and, and sort of satisfying electricity demand 
not a bad way to approach this. Um, and it's one of the pillars of having a sustainable energy system going forward. Well, the other thing is, if you can, it, you know, people, people are, you know, protesting, you know, the installation of uh, LNG plants, natural gas plants. However, if you can, if you can actually, if you could replace all the coal-fired plants in the world, you know, magically, with gas, you would drop emissions, you know, pretty dramatically just with that move. So we, we can't be purists in this. I think you know we we've got to be thinking about the trans you know transition states in you know for the next hundred years. We you know we've got limitations on technology before we get all the way to bright. I think that's true, and I think the U.S. is a good example of where the you know substitution of one energy type with for another has essentially is supporting what you're saying. So we have in the U.S. A lot of the coal inventory has come offline. It's no longer, you know, cost competitive, if you will. So the share of electricity generated from coal continues to fall. Natural gas and renewables have taken over that share and been growing. And as a result of that, um, emissions in the U.S. from the energy sector are down over the last 15 years, fairly substantially, anywhere around uh, 16, 17% or something like that. So I think that is meaningful. I think we need to think about going forward is to now 2024, what are we locking ourselves in, right? These plants have 20, 30, 40 year life. Where are we going to be in 2050? What does that mean for emissions? And how do we actually do this in a smooth process? Because it is, as you said, it's a transition. It's not flipping a light switch and going from one world into the other from one day to the next. So we need to transition out of certain um, energy intensive um, uses and move towards more sustainable demand patterns. Okay, well that, you know, so so now I, I you know, again, I'm a CEO of a, uh, you know, of a company that's not an energy company. They all know what they're trying to do and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to affect this, but but what do I do? I, I'm just, I, you know, I'm running, you know, I'm, I said, use the example of food, uh, you know, but. But I'm, I'm, I'm manufacturing something, I'm producing something, you know, or, you know, maybe I just have an office. I mean, what, what should I be thinking here um, in terms of actionable steps? I think there, you know, different companies so far have chosen different paths. I think there's certainly, and you mentioned this before in our conversation, there's been the path of offsets that's now been replaced at least by, you know, some of the technology firms or financial services firms by actually purchasing carbon removal services, essentially. I mean, that's still relatively small, but you know, there are goals that have been articulated basically say by a certain year in the future, companies are intending to offset their entire historical emissions. And you can't get there with offsets. You really actually have to think about what this means for, um, in most cases, direct air capture. So I think the other realization for business executives should be, you know, there's a price on carbon emissions that will be coming probably more broadly globally in the near future. As of right now, 25% of global carbon emissions are captured by some sort of pricing scheme. May that be emissions trading, a carbon tax, a combination of the two, like in Europe. And I think that's, that share is going to grow. So at some point, carbon emissions will come with an opportunity cost, at which point looking at carbon removal will not only make sense from 
a board strategy perspective, a consumer perspective, a communications perspective, and a sustainability perspective, but also from a business and economic perspective. Okay, well, you have to, we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about the government, but clearly the government and public-private partnership here is so critically important. But, you know, the, the government plays a role in regulation and, um, and obviously the policy that they implement. They, don't, they have to be careful, though, not to just do that willy-nilly or else they could crater the economy. I mean, you could you could really do some damage here. So so there there really needs to be, they need to work hand in hand with the private sector. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I think the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has, has created greater financial incentives for some of the new technologies. And you know that is going in the right direction of incentivizing some of the research and development in that area. But I do think that we're now at the place we're not at the place yet where when it comes to carbon removal, one particular strategy has sort of won out and we need to now throw everything at that particular strategy. But it's really, let's try to think about this in a more diversified way. There are different ways that you probably want to capture carbon from industrial um, processes and operations right now. There's a different, entirely different approach when we're talking about taking carbon out of the air. And I think we need to sort of, if, if government and industry can work together on working on some of these pilot projects, developing technologies to see what actually makes sense also from a cost effectiveness point of view, I think that's the right way forward. Yeah, and funding. And you know, the basic R&D cannot be afforded by any one given company or industry. It really needs, you know, this is a place where their social good is, you know, is at, is at risk. And so therefore, it's a, it's a logical place for government to play a role in the, in the fundamental R&D. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, what, we've, what we have so far is, is little specks of investment. I mean, they're still relatively small in the big scheme of things when, I, when I compared to investments in, let's say, the energy system overall. And that need to, really needs to be scaled up. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to envision how we can scale up um, carbon removal over the next generation. Alex Heil, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in geopolitics, economics, public policy, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with everybody who cares about a carbon-free 2050. I'm Steve Odlin, and this series has been brought to you by the conference board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the conference board.